Welcome to the Story of London podcast. My name is Saul, and each episode I try and tell the history of the city as it passes through time. Sorry for the sudden hiatus last week. I did record an episode, but due to travelling about a lot, it wasn't in my usual location, and as such, the sound quality was very poor. Rather than upload it as it was, I waited until my travels were over to record it again. I will try and compensate and record two episodes for next week, but my apologies. Anyway, onwards we go. It is often hard to balance the need to talk about the wider geopolitical events while focusing upon London. You see, time and again, London will place itself as the stage upon which nationwide events happen, which necessitates contextualization as I try to explain why London is the centre of all these things happening. And at other times, events elsewhere will suddenly impact upon London. And it has to cope with it. And I've got to explain what these events are elsewhere. Now, these external impacts tend to come in two forms. On the one hand, you have the sudden and unexpected, where the real politic of an era just juxtaposes itself upon the town, violently usually, and all I can do is recount how the residents coped with that particular spasm of fate. At other times, however, the impact is slower, more gradual, something that can take years or decades to really get established. In this chapter, we're going to see both these forces at work. I'm going to begin now, then, by introducing the more gradual change. There is a word that's a few years away from being born, a new word which carries with it a radical new idea, an alien concept which, upon hearing, contemporaries would have to have dwelled upon and think about. Maybe they like this word, maybe they hate this word, but none can ignore it. The word is... Anglesin, which literally translated from the Old English means English kind, and for some of us we now translate it as the English people. It is a word that didn't exist before this moment in time. It's why I've tended to talk about Mercians or West Saxons or Northumbrians, but really disliked using the word English. The English, the Anglesin, didn't exist until this word came about. And it is a word with the ideas that go along with it that were being born and created right now by one of the most ambitious and important leaders the island of Britain was ever to know. Because the difficulty of these next few years is that this is an era of myth and legend. Not the literary legend of some obscure imaginary figure like Arthur Pendragon, but of an imaginary place called England and the people who lived in it. England is imaginary? See, this is an era of deliberate myths created for political purposes, which our modern sensibilities immediately wish to call propaganda. This part of the Viking era was the part that is most filled with propaganda, with what are effectively political lies. But the lies had a purpose. They were not accidental. 
They were deliberate and part of a massive campaign of ideas that permeated the entire nation over the next generation or so, lie upon lie, designed to create a mythos intended to unite a frightened people behind a bookish, somewhat sickly man. And at its heart, the word Angleson. This is the start of the period where London was to be part of the birth of the nation of England itself. And so, let's examine how it got there, and how in the six years between 866 and 872, it was to find itself in the front line of a war unlike any other scene. This, then, is chapter 11 of the story of London, the first occupation. between the raid upon London in the 850s, which I covered in a previous part, and that early part of the 870s, where this chapter ends, are somewhat of a black hole to us. We know little directly about London during this era. In the last chapter, I postulated that it began to rebuild itself after the devastating Viking rage, and that it appeared as if some kind of coup d'etat had taken place in Mercia, seeing the rise of the most pro-Wessexian Mercian king, a man called Burgred. However, while we are now in a period where Wessex does begin to exert more influence over London, for example, the bishops of London were now having the kings of Wessex attest their charters, as opposed to the Mercian kings who had done so previously, Mercia wasn't done being a big geopolitical power. It wasn't a spent force at all. And whatever somewhat potentially subservient relationship had been going on between King Aethelwulf of the West Saxons and King Burgred of Mercia, that wasn't automatically transferred to his sons. Now, if all you do is just read the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which regular listeners will know as a document I have a few reservations about, you would be convinced that since the raid of 851, Mercia was a has-been nation, and it was all Wessex leading the way in the fight against the Vikings and winning lots, and everything was calm and fine in the kingdom of the West Saxons. This wasn't even remotely true. There were dynastic squabbles taking place. The previously united family of King Egbert was now at each other's throats, and the constant drumbeat repetition of Viking raids was causing the geopolitical situation to change very rapidly. Mercia and Wessex had begun a period of working together on things like, for example, fighting off the Vikings or subjugating the uppity Welsh. And while Wessex thought it was the senior partner in the relationship, it's also clear that so did Mercia. At first, indeed, Mercia was very definitely equal to Wessex. In 865, the new and newly crowned King Aethelred of Wessex and the 
had been in power for a few years now, King Burgred of Mercia, came to an agreement that there should be a new single unified coin for both Wessex and Mercia, the Lynette. Alas, these coins didn't have the Arabic design features Offers coins had. As these coins were being minted, London showed that it was back to being its role as an entrepot and trade hub. It was here that many of these lunettes were being produced, suggesting bullion imports and the return of successful moneyers making these coins. We also know that in 868, the king's younger brother, the bookish uh, Aetheling or Prince Alfred, married Elskwith of Mercia, uh, cementing the ties between the Mercian and the Wessexian royal dynasties at a dynastic level. We've time to really start mentioning Aetheling Alfred, shall we? He was different from his older brothers. He was born to King Aethelwulf and Queen Osberga of Wessex after they'd already had a family. He was their late baby, unexpected and surprising. Not for him the fate of his brothers to be fostered out at a certain age to be raised by some West Saxon family. His father, when it came to the time to decide to foster out Aetheling Alfred, was recovering from the recent loss of his eldest born son and his beloved wife in a very short period of time and obviously decided that Alfred was going to be raised in the court. Here, in the court of West Saxon royalty, Alfred became someone who saw the intimate details of the court up close and personal. He was attesting charters from the age of six, for crying out loud. As the youngest of the five brothers, he was probably raised for a career in the church, which made him the most literate of the brothers. And, probably to keep him out of trouble, he partook from a young age in the noble art of hunting. And he became an expert hunter, following his father around the country as the West Saxon court travelled everywhere he went, Alfred would go on a hunt. And this hunting was good for him, it turned a somewhat poorly and frail little teenager into someone who was somewhat more robust, and who also happened to then know the lay of the land of his father's kingdom. Alfred from a young age was someone who would know the geography of his homeland better than any of his brothers, something that was to become very important later on. However, we get ahead of ourselves. If you go back to that union in 868, the marriage of the Royal House of Wessex with the Royal House of Mercia, this was not done just for political or symbolic reasons. This dynastic union was done in an era where they needed to back up military action. Because in 868, we know that Mercia and Wessex were joining forces to combat the threat of the great heathen army. If this is an age of propaganda and of, well, lies, then no greater lies have ever been told than the ones about the great heathen army. It has become the source of so much quasi-mystical nonsense that it's very difficult to talk about it with any seriousness these days. I mean, let's get some things out of the way, shall we? The Great Heathen Army was not led by the sons of the mythical character 
Ragnar Lothbrok, who I'm afraid to say probably didn't even exist. In 865, when it first turned up, it was a vast, heterogeneous force made up of a multitude of much smaller bands. The great Heathen army was a creation of the Norse diaspora, away from Scandinavia, in those liminal spaces found in the western islands of Scotland or in the marshlands of Frisia or in the coast of the Irish Sea. These men who lived there and had lived there for generations, who had for at least two, maybe three generations, been people who could go off and join one force and then leave that force as circumstances and profitability demanded, here they very much seem to have decided to come together on what was simply one of the largest of their endeavours. Included in the ranks of the Great Heathen Army was everything from men who had genuinely just left Scandinavia. Why were they leaving Scandinavia? Well, it could be the policy of their leaders in the region of killing everybody who they suspected of supporting a previous regime. Or, or maybe they left because polygamy was widespread in Scandinavia. And if you're a poor man, the chances of you finding a bride were almost non-existent. But alongside newcomers from Scandinavia were the children of veterans of the original raids who were themselves veterans of raids into Francia and Scotland and Ireland and the north and south of Britain. In fact, for me, the best way to understand the great heathen army was to see how the historian Ben Raphael described it. To him, it wasn't an army led by a bunch of brothers. It was more a band of brothers, not so much an armed force, more a moving polity, a nation adrift. In its ranks were not just these warriors and Vikings from the Norse diaspora, but their wives, their children, their non-warrior household members, their slaves. In fact, the Great Heathen Army was not an army as we would recognize it today. In fact, the old English word used to describe it was hiri, which could also be used to describe a horde. And for me, that's what it was, a horde, the horde of the Norse diaspora falling upon England like a plague. It was unique, but also not unique. We tend to place the events of the Great Heathen Army in this box, like it was a standalone moment, but at the same time it was happening, there were simultaneous type events in the Frankish kingdoms or on the Russian river systems. We're looking at a displacement of a people and with it the chance for desperate and scattered groups to change their fortunes. No simple explanation would do such a thing justice. And because of that, we cannot be mad at the people at the time because they can't be expected to understand about these emerging geopolitical events. And so we have to allow them create their myths about what was going on because they were just trying to make sense of a complex world. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. One of the leaders of the Great Heathen Army, perhaps arguably one of, 
if not the most famous of them, is a man called Ivar the Boneless, who was supposedly a son of Ragnar Lofbrook, only he wasn't. He was most likely born and raised in a Norse Gael community on the Scottish side of the Irish Sea, and when he came of age, he joined his actual brother, a man called Olaf the White, possibly helping him unite the Norse Gales of Ireland in a vicious gang fight between Olaf's faction, who the Irish, in a fit of simplicity, decided to call the White Faction, and he led them against the rival faction, who the Irish, in a fit of simplicity, decided to call the Black Faction. Anyway, after Olaf and the Whites had done this and subjugated the Norse Gales of Ireland, they didn't then use this united force to turn on the Irish. In fact, they went the other way. They went on to conquer the Isle of Man and then subjugated Strathclyde in one of the most devastating Viking raids ever recorded, where scores of ships filled with Scottish slaves were brought back to their headquarters in Dublin before Ivor left his brother and joined the great heathen army and became the scourge of the English. Ivor's story is indicative of the nature of this horde of the diaspora, of the myriad of people and motivations of those involved. Of course, this chaotic nature of its composition is easily ignored and overlooked because of what it did. You see, in the space of a handful of years, this huge force basically destroyed the ancient kingdoms of Northumbria, placing huge parts of the land under Scandinavian domination. Which brings us to 868, see we come round eventually, and there was this huge Viking force who was now in Nottingham. And it was here that the forces of Wessex and Mercia, led by young King Aethelred and wily King Burgred, had turned up and besieged them in Nottingham. A big battle was brewing. The problem was, there wasn't a battle. What appears to have happened is that since it was Nottingham, and Nottingham was in Mercian territory, Burgred was able to call the shots on this joint operation, and this is why I feel the two sides were equal partners at this point. And what Burgred did seems surprising. He simply allowed the Vikings to return back north. There was to be no fight. They could get up and go back to Jorvik. Why? Well, based on the evidence we do have, it could be that Burgred had his hands full with other wars. When King Beothwulf of Mercia had died, the Welsh had risen up in rebellion and violence against the Mercians. And it could have been that Burgred was facing the kind of situation his ancestors like Pender the Strong would have known only too well centuries earlier. Mercia had 99 problems, and these Vikings were just one. Whatever was the case, Burgred was able to avoid the fight. The Vikings left and wintered in York, and the Mercian and Wessex armies also left Nottingham intact to fight another day. We know that the next year, 869, the Great Heathen Army decided to venture out from York, and into the territory of East Anglia. And we know that by 870 they had killed King Edmund of Anglia and conquered that territory. And this leads us to 871. 
and the arrival of a huge number of Viking reinforcements known as the Great Summer Army. Now there is much speculation about this force. Supposedly it sailed out of Denmark, but there's no clear evidence on this. The leaders of it included someone called Guthrum, who may or may not have been related to Danish royalty. And this suggests that it's the first time we can see a clear Scandinavian-based fleet being launched to attack an English nation. But considering that the force also included uh, another leader called Halfdan, which literally means half Dane, and as a kind of nickname somebody in the diaspora would pick up, it does suggest that this was again a more amorphous force. Whatever the case, the newly reinforced Vikings, that is the horde of the diaspora, with these new troops step up operations and they unleash hell upon Wessex. This podcast is supposedly focused on London, and I am bringing it back to London in a moment. So, because of that as well, we need not peer too closely into what follows. 871 is known for a wave of Vikings pouring into the land of the West Saxons, where King Æthelred and his brother, the young Æthelring Alfred, led their forces against them again and again. Supposedly, nine battles took place in 871, along with a score of unmentioned raids and attacks, and ultimately it led to the death of King Æthelred, and as such, to the elevation of his younger brother, Alfred, as King of Wessex. But... For Alfred's first year in power in 871, it's clear he's trying to maintain the fight, but with much depleted forces. And eventually, he paid off the Vikings, a large sum of cash to encourage them to just, well, you know, bugger off. Please. It's a protection racket unlike any other. And now this brings us directly to London. See, we know that over the winter of 871 and 872, this main body of the Vikings withdraw from Wessex and march directly towards London. Only this time there was no battle. The records say quite openly that over the winter of 871 and 872, the Vikings, quote, took quarters in London, unquote. I mean, can we just take a moment to blink here? Twenty years earlier, these guys had absolutely wrecked the place, and now they took quarters? What's going on? Well, whereas there's no clear explanation from the Wessex sources of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the Irish and Welsh sources Don't be around the bush. They're very clear. According to them, King Burgred of Mercy was engaged in a full-scale war with the Welsh. He couldn't then afford to fight a war on two fronts. It looks like ever the pragmatist, he saw the army moving out of the lands of the West Saxons, going towards his major port of London, and he paid them to keep the peace. And those raiders and hangers-on who'd come with them, They'd just engaged in a long bloody campaign against Wessex. They'd made a load of cash and had just been given more cash to just quietly nurse their wounds and recover. Sounds like a win-win situation to me. 
Whatever was the case, the Vikings were allowed to overwinter in London. And immediately I have lots of questions like where, where did they stay? And how did they set up there? How were they fed? What was the reaction to from the Londoners? Uh, did they overwinter in Londonwick? Or was it nearby, like within the walls of the old Roman settlement? Or was it downriver? Or was it in Southwark? We don't know, I'm afraid to say. I mean, residing within the old Roman walls would have been sensible, but there exists no evidence of this happening. Indeed, it would have been sensible for the residents to reside within the ruins of Londinium, but there exists no evidence of that either. We can only find scattered evidence, in fact, best to just call it tentative evidence of people using the space within the ruins of the old Roman settlement and where they did that was almost exclusively on its western side the part nearest to the town of Londonwick the rest of Londinium was an empty wide expanse of ground with a few scattered remains of the substantial Roman era buildings still around in a most ruinous state and those remains would, of course, just be the stone ones. Everything else would have perished by now. And yet, it just remains this deserted space. And we know from what people were saying that the, the old walls still had a profound impact upon residents and visitors. It was just not a place anyone wanted to live in. And since we're talking about it, there is some evidence to suggest that the old Roman ruins were seen as a place on the very edge of the Emporium's social status quo. It has been suggested that in the years leading up to the Viking Age and right up to this moment, the Roman ruins had been a liminal place where the outcast and the rogue could find shelter. What makes people come up with that? Well, bodies. There were occasional burials here around the old Roman ruins that while Londonwick had a fully functioning fine normal place for burials, here lay a place where unusual things were happening to bodies. I mean, for example, we found in the shadow of the wall a grave dating to just this era, one that had two bodies within it. One was buried normally, but the other was curled up, so they appeared to be resting on the first body's lap. And we also found down by the foreshore, where the old Roman docks had once been, two interesting graves of women very close to each other. One had been buried without any goods or elaboration, just a woman placed in a hole in the ground, holes filled in. Near her, however, something utterly different. A young woman, at absolute most 40 years of age, who'd been killed via a savage blow to the head and had been laid upon a bed of weeds by the river. Over her, slabs of tree bark had been arranged to create a sort of natural open-air coffin and then moss was used to cover up the rest of her and it then appears if someone then tried to take the whole thing a mound or mini barrow of some kind. The nature of these bodies, the unusualness of the locations and the condition makes some wonder if these were criminals or outcasts, if Londinium, the old 
deserted Roman ruins were a place for such people. It's an interesting idea, but alas, it is pure speculation. For all we know, it could just be a deserted part of the city that someone just decided to bury their loved ones in for reasons that just felt right to them. It is tempting, especially for me, to believe that these old Roman ruins became a place for the outsiders of London, its first den of thieves. Such places were to appear in the city to come with alarming regularity, but we do not know. In fact, the only thing we do know for sure is that there is no hint beyond scattered shards of evidence that anyone before 872 ever thought about relocating the town behind those old majestic Roman ruins. And we find no evidence of the Vikings overwintering here either. Which is basically me saying we do not know where those Vikings overwintered that year. We just know that it was somewhere in or very close by to London and that there was no fighting, no trouble that was worthy of record. Again, this suggests that Mercia paid them to keep the peace. I mean, it would make sense. Burgred had seen this force make mincemeat of the supposedly mighty armies of Wessex. He also needed to be busy elsewhere. Paying the Vikings cash to keep the peace would have made sense. And it had another benefit. If the Vikings were now located near an entropod, but they'd been given money to not wreck the place, and also they had that money they got from the West Saxons, that means if they're going to, well, spend the money, they need to spend it in London, buying materials from the traders there. This was a town that had only decades before established a long and successful trade relations with Scandinavians. Maybe we saw a sudden return to the old status quo, buying and selling items from the Vikings who were based in and around the town and had were flushed with a sudden influx of cash. Whatever did happen, they didn't stay for long. As far as we can tell, news arrived there had been some kind of uprising or armed uprising against the pro-Viking regime back in the Northumbrian lands. So when the weather cleared, the Vikings would have had to travel north and put it down and consolidate the lands that were supposedly theirs. We do know, however, that London continued to run before during and after this occupation and since there is no mention of violence and the mint doesn't suddenly stop working we suspect heavily that that winter of 872 those long cold months were definitely ones of occupation but not destruction and yet bottom line london had been under viking domination and occupation for the first time it wouldn't be the last Whatever the case, however they responded and acted, we know that as the weather turns and the spring of 872 emerges, the Vikings leave. And London's still intact. <laughs> I mean, as much as we can speculate on the reaction of people from the town, I, I'm sure they probably felt a sense of relief and or smugness. I mean, they may not have engaged in violence, but if they managed to charge these Vikings for goods and services, 
and had the audacity to do so, they would have shown a more militant and defiant attitude than had been seen previously in the town. The defiance of London coming out for the first time. Be that as it may, the events that would dictate London's fate were actually about to be decided elsewhere. And very soon, the most profound changes in the city's histories were about to happen. Over the next 14 years, the town itself would be irrevocably changed. And Londonwick was destined to die. As I said, there are two types of external events which impact upon London. On the one hand, the slow burn, and in this case the slow creation of a new national identity which was taking place in the mind of King Alfred and his advisers. But the other was heralded by the sudden occupation of London by the Vikings, which was really giving notice that what once was would be no more, that the death of London Wick was coming and there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. Although for the record, it wasn't the Vikings who killed London Wick. Thanks for listening. As I said last episode, there's a link going up to the rough script of this episode, plus some pretty pictures to be found in the description for those who want to read along as I rabbit along. It's only a rough script, so it does change here and there. Anyway, once again, my apologies for the week's hiatus. We'll try not to make that happen again. And I'll see you next time for Chapter 12 of The Story of London. London.